0: You're on the Fiction Road. I'm writer Cheryl Alloway. Let's drive it together and find out what fictional saga is around the corners. Choose from a variety of genres that are crafted with one thing in mind, the love of the story. It's a much needed part of our day, more than ever, to lose the fast pace and settle down into a place where our minds can go to another place and another time. Join me as we explore the narrative world in podcast format. It's never been easier to entertain ourselves than podcast storytelling. So sit back, choose your story, and see what The Fiction Road has to offer. Thanks for stopping by, and enjoy your stay. The Fiction Road is powered by Anchor by Spotify. Music is provided by Pixabay.com. Sit back and lose yourself in the fictional fantasy, The Skies of Uriton. Keo stood pensively with his long grey beard touching the stone floor of his castle chambers. The wind was working hard on the 25 foot long amethyst curtains that fell like silk on either side of his double-paned window. They fluttered silently as the cool breeze came wafting into the grey stone-clad room. His towering body took up half of the opening from his vantage point but he could see for miles. As Keo gazed out onto the green and lavender fields of the land, he whispered in a low baritone voice to himself as he stroked his beard with his long wooden fingers.
1: What will today bring?
0: Curiously, he walked closer to the window's edge and looked out a little farther in the distance, placing his large hands upon the stoop. He bent his wide back down while stretching his thick neck a bit more. He concentrated with a squint to his eyes, his strong hands reaching over and around the ledge with his fingers gripping the stone. He saw something in the far distance. Not only did he see it, as faint and tiny as it was, but he smelled something in the air a smouldering scent that made his eyes wide again with revelation. He furrowed his heavy brow and turned away from the window calmly but with purpose. The guards in the tower had not yet seen or detected the smell. But Keo's senses were sharp and weary from thousands of years of monarchy. He walked towards the huge doorway that led out into the halls of the castle... His hand gripped the large vertical door handle and he pushed the massive door open. He was known as Keo the Tall, his royal majesty of Uritin, which had existed for one purpose, to protect the planet. His people were created by the great architect in the sky, Esab, who had watched the demise of the human race after they pillaged their world until nothing was left. The humans warred for centuries until they finally came to a grave extinction. Their struggle lasted for centuries, and they had made ground on their growth as a highly intelligent society, but money and greed began to take over they became too advanced and could not control the power surge of progress. They had laid claim to two other planets over time, inhabiting them and mining the resources, developing cures for disease and drawing out minerals that brought millions of dollars to their pockets. But on every planet, however, they turned to greed and this led to war that over time was uncontrollable as it enveloped the planet. Evil fed off of the human urge to succeed and advance. The great architect was devastated by the actions of the first higher intelligence, but he knew that a greater society could be created. One that would be stronger and become guardians of the one planet he cherished the most. He wept for his beautiful humans and grieved his unsuccessful creation, but he was restless to try and create the planet's new civilization. He took away modern thinking and reversed life back to a simpler time. The plants and animals were left untouched as they had committed no crime and over time were left in peace alone but they would evolve from the ancient beings they once were into a vast array of creatures unlike any before. Still, Esau left the planet without higher intelligence. He needed time to decide on how they should exist. He knew they must be deeply attached to the planet this time. The landscapes healed over many years and the planet was a new place once again. Its beauty was unmatched in the universe, and Aesop was hopeful once more. On the day of the annual eclipse, when Noose and Noom joined together within the sky, Aesop told them that he was ready to place a guardian upon the planet. The great bodies of light and darkness were pleased. The very first of Aesop's new society was keo after he was content with his creation he gave keo more beings like himself and they began to flourish the people of uratin were known as the certs they were half human soul and half tree people and thus keo the tall himself stood 12 feet tall females stood at nine feet tall wearing light green woven gowns with leaves sewn together in beautiful diagonal patterns falling midway to their wooden shins and were tied with golden sashes that hung down in the front there were flowers and vines on their heads and they cared for the children as if they were treasures their hearts were pure and their souls were as gentle as the white butterflies that graced the branches of their massive treetop homes, which were built by simply bending down the top branches of the massive trees to create a domed domicile. They would never cut down nor harm the trees, as they were their ancestors, ancient and beautiful. The treetop homes were joined by the largest of the branches amongst the trees, some of them four feet in diameter, to take the weight of the huge certs. They hung jars of fireflies in the branches at night and built massive staircases out of rough stone that led up to each family's home in the trees. It was an immense forest of ancient redwood trees that lay before the king's castle Keo had chosen a royal home that was more human in nature and fashioned after the great castles of the medieval ancient times of the first beings. It was to protect and to instill a sense of awe to any enemies. Keo chose the castle from the stories Aesop told him of the humans and their history. He had been given all knowledge of the first races and their lives on the planet. It was Esob's hope that Kao and his people would learn from this and not repeat the mistakes that the humans had made. The male certs of Yurtin stood just short of Kao's height. They wore darker green tunics and trousers that reached their knotted knees. On their heads they had moss of various greens and browns as they aged, The moss would turn silver as the years went by. On all cert legs were their rings of life. Keo had thousands of rings running down the length of his legs. When he walked, he creaked with every step. They walked as if on stilts with long gaits and swaying arms. Their hands were long and fingers strong with knots at the joints. The men had bright blue eyes compared to the females, whose eyes were dark brown. When male certs were of age, they could choose to be a farmer or a soldier. Both were equally important to the Uritan society, and so there was no judgment toward anyone who wished to do either. It was easy for some to decide. Most males followed what their father and their grandfather had chosen keeping an even ratio of the two disciplines. As families grew, new spirits were born within each Sirt child, giving them the purest of hearts. Keo had pledged allegiance to his creator for as long as he lived, for even though the Sirt people were half-tree, they were not above death itself. Esob knew That to have a truly healthy society, its inhabitants had to go through the cycles of life and death, as did all other creatures in existence. Keo had pleased Esau, and the world became a place of glorious beauty. Keo made his way down the fifty-foot hallway to the courtyard, and his army's general, Tonk, came slowly toward him with his arms swaying back and forth at a pace quicker than Keo's. Tonk knew something was wrong as Keo never came to the courtyard this early in the day before his meal. With his rumbling low voice, he said,
1: My king, you are troubled in some way. What is it?
0: Tonk stood just below Keo in height, as did the other men, but his arms and legs were thick, and his mossy head was now turning silver. He had a stern look upon his wooden face that was defined by patterns of grains travelling from his forehead to his chin. Tonk did not have a beard, however. In fact, the king was the only cert with one, as he was Aesop's first. He cradled the oldest human soul within him. Kao answered Tonk.
1: I am not troubled yet, my friend, but I feel as though something has been watching the walls from the far distance. Send a few men to check the area.
0: Yes, my lord. Tonk's long gait took him back to the stone clad hallway as he braced his sword by his side there was a small movement of the ground when assert walked their feet were made of splayed roots in the shape of human feet and their grand weight made the floor or ground beneath them shudder ever so slightly kao's castle sat hundreds of feet above the grey stone wall of Eternog built by the Sirt people to protect its inhabitants. The walls enclosed Uritin for over 1,000 miles in every direction. The rest of the world was left untouched and allowed to evolve on its own. Along with that came many different societies, just as it did with the humans. Most were good in their hearts, but evil always found itself back into Esob's world. It was the one thing that he could never defeat or contain. Keo prayed to Esob that the certs would not falter as the humans had. Isab missed the innocence of the first humans and the intelligence of those who developed the world to be a place of communication, invention, and inspiration. Alas, the everlasting power of evil was always a threat to Isab's dream. The soldiers of Uritin had seen many battles over time, and Keo was a seasoned king. His men were loyal beyond all odds. When seen together on a battlefield, they were a fearful contender as they stood long and tall with strong arms and legs and determination on their stoic faces. They wore the soldier's tunic of brown and grey, intermingled over their bodies with black sashes tied to the waist to drape down in two short ends. They donned the armor of the Surt Army, known as Leets. The armor wrapped around their wide upper torso and was tied with woven rope made by the women to be strong and pliable when movement was required. Their heads were covered in green moss and their blue eyes sat just below the symbol that was tattooed into each forehead. The symbol of a Uritan soldier was a braided circle that was backed by two intersecting swords representing the union between Isab and the Uritan Society. In the middle was a large oval leaf with jagged edges. They received this tattoo when they turned 500 years old and made the selection of soldier as their calling. Farmers had the same tattoo, but within its circle was the image of the leaf with a bundle of wheat behind it. Uritans could live for thousands of years. Keo's people prayed every day that he would not leave them. He was their beloved leader, and it was he who guided them to a peaceful and productive life. The Uritans had many smaller allies that lived outside the walls of Etinag. The world had seen many creatures evolve and find life on the new planet. The clan of Ritar was one of Kao's most trusted allies. The Ritars were water dwellers who existed within the water itself as heavenly entities. They were not seen unless called upon. The leader of the Ritars was known as Eccle. Ko instructed a small group to travel to Echo's habitat, thirty miles away, and request his assistance to fight the enemy he knew was coming. It would not take them time at all with their long running strides. While he was not certain what he was up against, Ko's eyes told him something was watching from afar. He sent a message to Echo, explaining his concern. He hoped it would not be long before his liquid friend would make his way with his army up the rivers and streams to lay rest in the lake of Ulub. It sat just outside the walls of Uriton, and its streams and rivers fed the farmers' fields. The area had been swept for miles around the walls, and there seemed to be no immediate threat. But Keo could smell his nemesis on the wind. It was a rancid and thick odour. He did not wish to create unnecessary fear and knew that it would be at least two days if the enemy showed themselves. The king went out amongst the people and greeted the merchants in the market that ran for a mile through the centre of Uriton. He would give them reassurance by showing himself among them. If something did happen, they would maintain their confidence in their compassionate and loving leader. Creatures and visitors from all over the planet came to Uraten to trade and buy their goods. The farmers of Uritin were known for the vast fields of grained fruits and vegetables along with the main food of sustenance for the Sirt people. They consumed copious amounts of a root vegetable called slurenin. It was nutritionally beneficial for the tree people of Uritin, as it contained all elements of the soil that were required for their tree ancestors to survive as well. It grew four feet into the soil, and when pulled, was as purple as the curtains in Keo's chamber. This was a colour of choice, and by design, of course. As Keo walked in his rumbling royal gait with his legs creaking as he went, all creatures, great and small, paid homage to him as he walked by. The market had tables and canopies up and down both sides of the road. Colourful fruits and vegetables adorned the tables, along with various clothing, spices, handmade trinkets and more. Among the merchants were certs and various characters from east and west. Some were short, robust and filthy from their travels. Others were almost as large as the certs, such as the familiar merchant called Togue. He was amphibious, but stood upright with a hairy chin and a green body covered in a tanned tunic and full-length pants. Upon his three-toed feet, he wore sandals to protect their delicate bottoms. His face was short and wide with large eyes that protruded from deep sockets, Tog sold handmade knives and swords. He was a master blacksmith by trade, and Kao was more than pleased to see him there on this day.
1: Your goods are welcome here today, Tog. I will purchase all of your swords and half of your knives. Kao said as he paused at Tog's
0: table. Kale had to kneel down a bit to see the well-constructed weapons.
1: My lord, it will be so. Thank you for your generous purchase.
0: Togue had a gurgled sound to his voice. He reached up and handed the king one of the swords which was four feet in length with a black metal handle that gave way to two protruding pieces of steel in a braided cord and a ball on each end. Although Togue was quite large himself, he needed to use two hands to lift the sword up to the king. The swords were made large enough to fit the hands of the giant Sirt soldiers. Togue had a cart with him with ten elums pulling his cart. Elums were the versions of the ancient creatures called donkeys, but the elums had huge brown bodies and strong legs that were covered in hair. Their manes were braided and wound around their necks because of their length, giving way to their oversized heads. They now grazed in the field behind the market while their master worked. It would be much easier for them to ride home and pull the empty cart than was with the swords heavy within it. As Keo approached the stand that was selling Slorenum, he noticed two of his little friends that came often to the market to sell their goods and visit the castle walls. Little Trid and his sidekick Drib were bouncing with excitement to see the king. They sewed jewelry with hand collected colored pebbles and stones. They had found each other, wandering in the world alone, surviving on bits and pieces from the forests and fields, and when they met, they became comrades forever. Trid was the leader of the two, and Drib was his funny and hapless little friend keo adored both of them when they looked up at him he would pick them up in one hand and speak to them at times he would let them ride upon his back as he surveyed the farmer's fields once they sat high on keo's shoulders while the wind almost blew them off they sat gripping the king's wooden back and smiled from ear to ear as he placed his large hand over them now and then when the wind became too strong. Drib had slid off once and began rolling down Kao's back, but the king caught him and held him closely like a baby for protection. The frightened little Drib felt a deep love for the kind king, both were so small that he allowed them to come and go as they pleased they had upon many occasions spied for keo and he took them in almost as pets trid stood one foot tall with a dark brown furry body and a face that only a mother could love he had long feathery tail that he wrapped around himself at night for warmth He would use it to push down into beehives that had fallen off of trees to get the silky sweet nectar. He had paws like a squirrel and black eyes that gave way to bushy eyebrows. Dribb was quite crooked and odd-looking to say the least, standing just as tall as Trid. His little hairless body was decorated with spots of brown and black. His tiny feet and hands were not unlike the ancient creature known as a monkey. He had no tail, but a stump that stuck out two inches from his lower spine. He had one tuft of hair upon his head that was white and fell down his back. His eyes were bright green and his teeth were as rotten as could be. But the king saw value in his little friends as he moved on. They were still jumping up and down as his huge feet made the ground under them wiggle.
1: I hope you sell much today, my little friends,
0: he said as he turned to leave, grasping his long beard to ensure it fell in front of him once again as he walked. The market was bursting with activity. Many of the cert farmers had stands set up. And were buying and selling produce as the morning went on. Keo sighed as he walked and saw the innocence in his people. This is what Esau wanted, but was it in danger yet again? He had heard nothing until the end of the day. His patience had begun to wane, but the soldiers returned that evening with word from Echo. And more news about the sighting Keo had had. Keo was sitting upon his huge thorn of stone and moss after eating his meal. The arms were thick marble and the same length as his six-foot-long arms and hands. The fingers of his left hand gripped the cold stone and his beard was, as always, laid across his large lap, resting upon the shin of his right leg. He gripped his staff in the other hand just off to the side of the throne's arm. Keo's staff had engravings upon it from the beginnings of the Uritan people. Every battle was carved upon the seven-foot driftwood staff, whose girth was five inches in diameter. It was an ancient piece of tree that had been given to Keo by Esob when he crowned him king of his new world. Kael was majestic and royal with his long face held high. He was a proud king, and his soldiers sauntered respectfully through the huge double doors where he sat calmly. The doors moaned as they opened, and upon their length were circles of copper lined up and down the centre of each side. They had extra trim around each edge which held the carved names of every soldier who had died in battle. Among the names was that of the king's brother, Radic. At that moment Keo missed his brother deeply, but he had to focus on the information the
1: men had brought to him. He blinked slowly and said, Come, do dispense the formalities and tell me what you have for me. The first soldier
0: stood seriously as his determined eyes gazed upon his king. He spoke with clarity in a deep, slow voice.
1: "'My lord, Echo and his men will arrive by morning. "'The area that you requested us to search did not have much evidence for us to go by.' But we did find this.
0: The soldier placed an object upon the stone floor before the king. Once folded out, he could tell what it was. Keo stood to take the two steps down from his throne. He knelt upon one knee and made a low, creaking groan as he did so. He did not wish to touch what was put before him until he was sure. But inside, he had a feeling of what it was. The men, too, knelt down, and as they did, Tonk entered the huge doorway and joined them. As he bent down on one knee, he looked at Kao, and both of them knew exactly what the other was thinking. "'Men, leave us!' Tonk requested.
1: "'You have done very well!'
0: The men got up and respectfully bowed before turning and leaving the huge chamber. As they turned, they grabbed the massive copper handles that hung as loops from the middles of the two doors and pulled them closed with a loud thud. I haven't seen the likes of it since the wars of the Erifs, my lord. Tonk? tried to get Kao to say something, but he was calculating the risk of finding this object so close to his people again. Kao could picture the last battle against the Erifs. That battle took his brother Radek's life. Radek was not Kao's true brother, but he was one of the first certs that came to be and lived forever loyal to Kao. They were bonded like family, and so it was that Keo held Radik within his heart as his sibling. He wept, and asked to be left alone for days after that battle. Tonk had feared for his king's sanity, but Keo only required the time to speak to Aesob and understand the emotions that had overtaken him. With the human soul, the great king was not without anguish, and it was what made him the leader he had become. Keo rose now, and Tonk picked up the object, placing it off to the side of the room on a stone bench. He and Keo sat upon another bench on the other side of the room. Keo was caressing his beard. He did this when he was agitated or in deep thought and Tonk knew why. Finally, he took a very deep breath and placed both hands upon his staff as he sat. His long back bent forward in thought.
1: He looked at his friend and general and stated, We must assume the worst if we do not it shall be our demise prepare the men Tonk gather the citizens and tell them of the threat that may be near we haven't seen our enemy yet but if we have learned anything from the past we must not allow our strength to cloud our judgment with this being found so close we must be ready Tell the merchants to clear the road, and if they need to, they may take shelter here. This enemy tried to take Uritin once before, Tonk. We cannot and will not allow it to happen again. Yes, my lord.
0: Tonk got up and bowed to his friend and king. He turned slowly, gripping his sword sheath And walked with purpose to the doors. He opened one only, closing it again behind him and left his king in the room to take everything in. Keo now walked over to the object that had been found. He gazed down upon it and grasped his staff. Angst filled him from within and his fingers groaned as they wrapped tighter and tighter around the thick wooden scepter. Before him lay something that the certs had hoped to never see again. Kao bent down and picked it up. He squeezed it within his fist and walked over to the large stone placard on the wall behind his throne gazing up with reverence words were set within an intricately decorated frame within the stone whose size matched Kao's throne, giving it a sense of grandeur.
1: Your words must be with me now more than ever. The magnitude of this battle will be the ultimate test to our worthiness. Kao
0: was looking upon the words, that were engraved by his own hands before his people even came to be. Aesop had challenged Kael to write it for every Uritan to live by. Its words read, For it shall be the allegiance of the Uritan people to cast evil into the darkness from wherever it is born. Goodness shall be the most valued quality for all eternity. For the Uritan people shall live in peace and sanctuary upon the planet as long as their virtue is not tarnished and their loyalty to the great architect is unwavering. Yut sindug ilas Ib riveroff. These words meant true goodness shall be forever these were the last words written in the language of some of the oldest humans of Aesop's planet when they learned to speak they could not write yet but they drew pictures on the walls of caves and survived some of the harshest times in the history of their planet they were pure at heart and innocent Once, that is. Esau had Keo scribe their language within the placard's great words so that they would never be forgotten. Keo sighed deeply again, looking at the cloth within his hands and said out loud,
1: This shall not change us. If you are coming, I will be waiting for you. I WILL BE WAITING FOR YOU!" He shouted so
0: loudly that the soldiers down the hall heard it. They looked at each other. They knew this side of their king well. Kael was not going to allow anything to take Uritin and leave Aesop's world in turmoil again. The men clutched their swords looked at each other again and nodded their heads up and down. They were ready to fight for their king once again. Keo turned to leave the room, and within his hand he held the piece of black cloth. But it was not just any cloth. This was a piece torn from the uniform of an Arith soldier. It must have been sheared from someone as they crept through the thick forest underbrush, spying on Uritin. It was a huge mistake, because now Kao knew they were coming. That night, after Tonk and the citizens organized and sheltered, he watched as some of the merchants fled from Uritin's walls to return home and avoid the battle. Only a few stayed behind. Trid and Drib would not leave their king, and Tog decided that his lumbering team of Elams would not get him far very fast. He stayed, and because of the situation, he gave the rest of his weapons to the soldiers of Uriton. They would do him no good now, and he felt as though he was helping. It was still early in the day when a familiar sound came across Lake Ilb. The sound of waves reaching the shores and crashing against the rocks was a welcome one indeed. Eccle and his men had arrived, and Keo and Tonk rushed toward the shore, which was one mile away from the wall of Etinog. Their long legs stretching out before them as they went, the two giant men shook the ground as they made their way to welcome Ickle. Six Surt soldiers were told to stand guard beyond the boundary of the lake as the king of the Surt's and his general lumbered in on their final few steps. Ickle rose from the water in a funnel and spoke to them, The water churned and sprayed into the air fifty feet. It rolled around in a cylindrical tube
1: as the voice of Echo was heard. You have called me in due time, my friends, for I know now why you requested our journey here. If
0: you are right, we shall stand by your side when evil comes upon you. Remember the hot rays of Noose above, for if the fighting comes at midday, we will not be able to stay and must retreat back here to the safety of the deep water. We shall fend off the flames of our enemy together for as long
1: as we can resist.
0: Eccles' people had one more weakness that his soldiers had to face. When they swelled up to fight, they turned into a large tube of thick water, but it had another layer of mist on the outside surface. This mist would perish quickly during midday as Noose's scorching rays would evaporate them. Each time a new layer of mist would form, the heat would slowly eat it away at the otherwise impenetrable wall of water. If they were to be valuable to Kao, they would have to hope that the fighting would take place when Noose was lower in the sky. As long as Echo could, he would be there for Kao. What he could do was give Kao time and act as a deterrent while Kao's archers and cannons did their job. The time had come to ready the soldiers, smoke was now smelled from the tower and in the far distance they saw the enemy that their king knew was coming days before. Keo had quietly taken a moment in solitude to pray to Aesob and ask him to have faith in his certs.
1: Great architect, I have not spoken to you since my brother's demise. And it is now that I face the very evil that took him from us both.
0: Aesop was never seen or heard, but Keo had the ability to speak to him in his mind. The great architect had given his great king many gifts.
1: It is you I have chosen, Kao. Your heart is pure
0: and has never tarnished. Throughout the progression of your people, you have built a great nation, and you have continued to hold on to your innate goodness. For this I am proud, but you must know that this enemy is strong. He is powerful and even within. It is something that pains me so, for I cannot help you face him. All I can give you is my blessing to do what you must. Your brother was a good man, and he is with you in spirit. Feel his energy surge through your limbs, Kale. It is this faith that will carry you to lead your people to survive. I will not know what the outcome will be. And I fear for you as I always do. But you must find it in your human soul to defend and protect. This is your charge as the greatest leader I have ever created. Keo bowed his head and held on to his emotions. He raised his majestic face up to the sky once more and stated,
1: For your and for you, great architect, I will give my whole being. Pray for us, Isab. for this enemy will challenge us once again with darkness and vengeance. He
0: lifted himself up with his huge staff and bowed once more to the sky. Keo the Tall, the greatest king ever to walk the planet, was facing his own fears of failure and responsibility. He searched deeply and grasped on to his courage once more. With a gait of determined power, he made his way to Tonk and his men. A huge black army was trudging slowly but surely from the forest now. From the distance the soldiers in the tower could sight enormous trebuchets that were making their way to the scene. They had torn a trough through the beautiful trees, and they were the very thing that Eckle was called for. The Erephs shot flaming projectiles from the catapults, and only the power of the waves of the Rattars would keep them mid-air before they blasted the walls of Ettenarg. The item of choice that the Erifs used to hurl at their foe was the very rock that graced the countryside beyond Uritin's walls. It was the one thing that could ever penetrate, but they also added tar and set it aflame before it made its way to its target. They were devastating weapons that once tore a hole 100 feet in diameter into the walls of Uriton. This was the strike that killed Kao's brother, Radic. He would not allow this to happen again. To send his men out into the field to meet and attempt to stop them would be futile at first. They had to wait and allow them to come into range of their own large artillery. The Arif soldiers were large in numbers and Kao did not want his men to leave the safety of the walls until they knew what they were up against. It meant bringing the enemy closer. But with Echol at the ready, kao prayed that his new alliance would work this time. The last time they had battled the Erifs, it ended in a bloody victory, but left the Uritans badly scarred. The leader of the Erifs stood with a smug, disgusting gaze.
1: This will be the day we take them.
0: He growled to
1: himself.
0: The Eryth army was a terrifying sight even to the seasoned warrior. Standing on all fours like an ancient wolf, they could rear up on two legs and use their front ones as arms. They did not have paws, however. Instead they had hands that were formed by three projecting claws that had sharp nails protruding from the tips. They wore the black uniform that Kao's men had found a sample of and their bodies were dark brown and bold. Eta's men wore their battle helmets of pewter upon their heads and their ears stuck out of them in order to hear. Their faces were soulless and their eyes disappeared into their dark, cold expression. Their teeth were like that of the wolf as well, and when they were raging during a fight, they were some of the most horrifying creatures on the planet. The great architect in the sky had to watch and do nothing for his creations. It was the law of the universe that when a new planet was given the right to live, its inhabitants had to prove themselves to have the right to survive. This law could not be broken, and now Aesop watched from the skies with horror as his planet was being threatened once again. His only hope was Uraten's resilience in the current time of day, for it would soon be midday, and Noose would be rising higher above it all. His heat would now begin to damage the waters of the Rattars. Echol watched the sky and he too realized the danger to his men he gave Kael the call that he was moving forward and the waters began to rise and flow onto the earth in massive waves that covered the field before the evil Aeriths realized what was happening during the last great battle the Rattars were not present There had been no relationship between them and the Surtz yet, and as now the evil Eta realized what he faced in the two of them, he called to his men to throw everything they had into the trebuchets and launch the deadly missiles. Kao's heart raced as he saw the first barrage booming with fiery rage through the sky towards them. The sky turned a dark, morose grey and all living creatures had scattered and taken shelter, even within the walls of Uritin. The women and children had taken flight and made it far enough away that they were safe, but they stopped and watched the dark, dusty battle from afar. They cried tears for their soldiers and the farmers who stayed along with the merchants who had volunteered to stand by the king if needed. Togue himself was armed and ready. Little Trid and Drib were staying close by his side. They would be lost in an instant in the chaos of the massive battle. Togue looked down, and grabbed them both to sit upon his shoulders to see better, and he felt them
1: shaking. Trust the king, my little ones. He is our great leader.
0: Just as Eckel had promised, he rose up with his men and a wall of water funneled now, protecting the west side of Uritin. With the power of a thousand tidal waves, Eccle and his men caught the flaming rocks as they plummeted and grabbed onto them slowly, putting them down from their mid-air projections. Their forms would stretch and bow under the weight. The trebuchets had a reach of 500 yards and Tonk stood up with angst as he watched the water stop the danger only feet away from the castle walls. They fell to the ground with an earth-shattering thunder and the landscape shook for miles around. What no one realized at first was the extra wall building up from the stones that had been hurled, Etar cursed the Rattars for helping. But Echo kept his men swirling and winding themselves into great masses of water that were hundreds of feet deep and wide. They could only capture the stones and release them to the ground, for all their strength was needed to stop the deadly onslaught. It was a great advantage this time to Keo. But Itar was fighting hard. Suddenly, Kao's eyes widened with fear as two of the trebuchets launched together and broke through two spaces in the wall of water. Tonk stopped breathing as he knew too what was about to happen. Get back! Get back! Tonk cried. The two flaming balls forged a path through the air and struck on both sides of the main gate.
1: Save the cannons! Pull them back!
0: Hale shouted. His loud, booming voice was heard like a roar, and the men struggled to pull back the cannons that were mounted upon massive carts with wheels. The farmers and the merchants saw their chance to assist, and with all their power they joined in on the task. Frightened little Trid and Drib were with him and raced out of the way, Trid was almost trampled as they bobbed and weaved in and around the huge feet of the tree men to take cover. There was a cry from the ground and Kael saw that one of the two stones had punched a hole in the main wall, just coming up short of breaking completely through. Eta sneered as he saw his chance. He launched more trebuchets, and two more broke through Eckel's wall of water, striking in the same place as the first. He was trying to create an entry spot, should he make it that far. Eccle and his men were doing everything they could and kept many of the trebuchets' weapons from getting to the wall, but the heiress were heavily armed. Eta now sent his crossbowmen to brace themselves behind other Aerith soldiers with huge shields as they raised into the sky. Their bows were armed with arrows tipped with the same flaming tar as the trebuchet stones. There were huge vats of boiling tar being pushed on carts into position. This must have been one of the smells that Kao had sensed in the air days before. Aerith soldiers stood around their comrades in arms, dipping the arrows and running them to the boom and lighting them with torches as each arrow was mounted and launched. They were efficient, and Kao was looking on in horror. The bowmen of the Erifs now braced themselves on their hind legs and knees. Each one pulled back slightly behind the one beside him as their own arrows took flight towards the walls of Huritan. Trid and Drib raced down the stone stairway and found a hole in the nearby wall to hide. They feared the end was near. Tobe, the merchants, and the farmers pulled together, and joined the soldiers as they raised their own wide plates of metal over everyone within the courtyard. The king himself followed Tonk as they left the view from the top of the wall to take shelter from the onslaught of flaming arrows. Hold your positions! Keo bellowed as they waited under the safety of the shields before throwing them off with lightning speed. The cert archers now returned fire from slits in the walls. They bent down and aimed the arrows into the air through the deep rock crevices that overlooked the field. Tonk now blew his war horn, and all archers scattered the sky with a sea of heavily armoured arrows that were themselves tipped with dark grey stone heads. As they flew through the air making their mark, They battered half of the trebuchets and killed many Eryths who were manning them on the ground, but the Eryth bowmen were not finished. They scrunched down, guarding their own shields, and took the blows that made dents in their metal over their heads from the cert arrows. The power of the stone arrows took them by surprise. It was all they could do to keep from being crushed But they lurched back up, screaming, and sent another barrage of flaming arrows right back at Uriton. The sound was deafening and frenzied. This second shower hit hard, and Kale was almost a victim as he ducked in and out to maintain a visual on the scene. It was utter chaos. Each side was building momentum, but they were beginning to lose men cries came from the serped women and children as they held each other and watched from a distance mother what is happening a young girl cried out she was terrified and they huddled together weeping as the women tried to console them they looked at each other in the eyes and wept with fear hold on to me my little one stay calm my child there was nothing they could do but watch. Esab was fearful as he watched from above. Have I failed you again? He remarked quietly to himself. Echol and his water warriors were finding themselves weakening in the rays of Noose, and they had to withdraw each time the Aerith arrows flew to allow for the Cert arrows to pass. They could not rise and fall that quickly in between, but they were still in the way of the eriffs if they decided to forge forward on the ground. Ytar was enraged. He had not expected the Rattars, and they had kept too many of his stone projectiles from reaching the walls of Etanarg. His men looked at him with confusion. <sighs> what? Is our move, Shire? They were running out of arrows and tar. The Erif men went into a flurry of disorder. This was not the battle that Etar had wanted to fight. His jealousy of Kao and his people for being the chosen ones on the planet was innate within him. His face was black with anger. His fangs were bared and his eyes were red with hatred. The only thing he could do was cry out to his men to move the trebuchets forward and use them as cover. But this was a mistake, as the cannons of Uritin were now booming into the sky. Tonk had seen the slowing of the flaming arrows and acted quickly. While the Erifs decided what to do, Tonk and his men had moved the cannons back into position. Kao had cried to his men to open the massive main gates and wait for his command to forge forward after the cannons had done their part. They utilized the extra shelter provided from the disarmed trebuchet artillery that now lay in a muddy, tar-drenched line in front of the gate. Trid and Drip made their way up to the top of the wall on Togue's shoulders once again. They jumped down and sat on the edge beside Kao, who had raced back to the top to see what was happening. He placed his large hand around the two of them and comforted them as they looked on with fear in their eyes.
1: Stay brave, my little ones.
0: They were pressing against each other under Kao's hand. When he released them, they moved down behind the wall and stayed out of the way again. Tonk took his large battle horn and made the call to Etar and his men to let them know that they would not stand down. A loud thunderous drum floated across the now badly scarred
1: smoking field
0: it reached the king of the Arith army and he glared toward the giant gates of Ettenarg. Now, as the rays of Noose became too hot for the Rattars, Echol had to retreat and take his massive wave of protection away from the scene. The deep blue waters were forced down into their normal state and flowed quickly back into the lake. They could do no more to assist Keo understood and made the next move so as not to give Etar one minute to breathe. The ground where the Ratars had been was muddy and it was going to be hard for Etar to even think about moving his catapults any closer. He only had a limited number of stones left. Etar was panicking on the inside but exuding confidence on his slimy face. His men would not see his concern if he could help it. To look weak in their eyes was not an option. Within seconds, the Arabs were bombarded with Chaos cannons. At the same time, Etar yelled for his men to shoot back, they could only release ten more flaming stones that reached the site of the war but with little time to aim properly they fell too short far to the left and right to even make a hit. They were wasted. Six of them rolled like a train though, bouncing dangerously over and around the soldiers in waiting and struck the stone facade of Etinag's walls, but they did not breach. Now as the evil army began to fall even more, Tonk gave the signal for the men on foot to attack. Hundreds of huge Sert soldiers moved in a mass towards the black army of Etar. With a thunderish crash, the two groups met in a swarming sea of swords and battle cries. The Ereths were on all hind legs now, fighting one-on-one with the Serts. They were easily matched in height. The cert soldiers were losing some of their men, but once the main corps arrived in full force, Etar looked on in utter loathing of Kao's defense. He was losing, and as Tonk exited the main doors to join his men, he and Etar met eyes. Through the mud, they made a move on each other. The two made no effort to pause and rushed each other head on with a vengeance. Tonk had been by Radic's side when he was killed by the Eris Trebuchet onslaught before and he could not escape the image of Kale as he watched his brother die. In slow motion both Tonk and Etar raged at each other with swords drawn long forceful gates were being matched stride for stride, coming to a powerful muddy peak in the middle of the field. Keo looked down with fear for his friend and made his way to the entrance as well. His men looked on in horror as their king ran with a stride so wide that no one could match him as the mud splashed up around his legs. He reached the fight between Tonk and Etar and threw his own sword upon his enemy. Etar's blade slashed Tonk's leg, and he fell to the ground. Kao braced his massive legs wide apart and threw his weight into huge strikes that landed upon the belly of Etar. He
1: split him
0: open, and as the blood spilled, Etar went to
1: the ground. For my brother! For my people! Keo shouted
0: so loudly that the fighting seemed to come to a sudden stop. Men from both sides looked at each other to see who would make the next move. Kao's voice was actually felt by some of the fighters within their chest. And instantly, the remaining heiress fled towards the forest, melting into the stand like a cowardly flock of bats into the night. They reverted back to all four limbs on the ground to run faster, leaving. Kao's men shouted in unison. Tonk got up and limped over to Kyo who was breathing heavily, with blood upon his face, staring down from his twelve-foot view at Etar. The evil king was dead. His massive body lay before Keo, who promptly turned in the direction
1: of the forest. We cannot allow them to get away. Men, follow me now. This fight is not over.
0: Tonk watched with pain as his king led the men in a roaring mass to chase the remaining errifs. He could not run with his injury, but got up with the help of some of the farmers who had made their way outside. Kao had told them not to leave the safety of the walls of Etinog unless absolutely necessary. He could not risk anyone else, if at all possible. It took four of them to lift the weight of Tonk's body. But when they finally got him into the castle, and he was tended to by the females who had returned with the children, Keo and the men were sighted. They were returning alive, and as they entered the room where Tonk was now laying, they also gave him the news he had prayed to Aesop for. They stood before the general, muddy and tattered, but victorious. Tonk spoke to Keo.
1: My old friend, I thank the stars that you are alive. My lord, I wish I had been by your side.
0: Tonk hated it when Keo had to fight without him close by. It was as if he were failing him. But Keo placed his large right hand upon Tonk's dirty shoulder and
1: answered, Fear not, for tonight... Aesop will be at peace, my friend, and so will Uritin. Your bravery did not go unnoticed.
0: As Chaos sat down, his huge body creaked and moaned. He took his armor off, and letting it fall upon the floor, he wiped his long textured wooden face, grabbing his beard as he always did, straightening it with strokes of his long fingers. It was full of mud but he would tend to it later. He placed his hands on both of his knees and looked out the window at the heavily tarnished field.
1: We will rebuild this land Tonk. I have not lived my long life to see it end. If the errors came to be more evil may come. We must be given the charge of protecting this place. There is something inside of me that aches for peace, but Aesop has told me that we cannot exist without challenges. They keep us to stay for survival and make us understand the blessings that we have been given Our children must always be taught this my friend. The humans tried and lost their way. We must learn from their strife. We must and we will. Tonk closed his
0: eyes and opened them again. Their blue hue was tinted with red lines and his face was tattered and dirty. They had defeated the Eryths for good but now they had to find it in their hearts, to go on while they mourned the lives of those they had lost, yet once again. Keo the Tall was a great leader and one that would keep Uritin protected against all odds. Aesop had chosen well. But Tonk knew that Keo would not live forever. They had to plan for the future. For now, Sleep and peace was falling over the tree-top dwellings of Uritin and its king's castle. Tonk had assistance getting to his room for rest, and as King Keo sauntered, sore and tired, to his own chambers. He plonked down on his huge bed and lay his weary head upon a soft pillow of heather and grass sealed within a blue cloth casing, as he prepared to pull a blanket over his huge body, he heard a tiny tap at the door. He called for the guest to enter. To his surprise and delight, it was Tog, and Trid and Drib in tow. Tog asked graciously if the two little warriors could stay with their king for the night. They were terrified of the eris return. And as Kao smiled at their sweet innocence, he said with a paternal voice,
1: Take the rug in front of the fire, my little ones. You are safe with me. Sleep now and be thankful. Trid and Drib wrapped
0: themselves up together within Trid's tail and finally closed their eyes by the flame of the fire. Keo was weary, and as the grey-mottled Noom took the place of the bright orange noose within the sky, the king said goodbye to Tog, who left quietly to find his own bed within the castle for the night. Trid and Drib nestled into the thick rug that lay before the warm, comforting flames. They were very different from those who had besieged the castle walls. The king smiled once more and drifted off to sleep. As he dreamt, Esab visited him in his dreams and told him that life would not be safe forever. He had done well, but his eyes needed to be weary still. Esab was very pleased, however, and told Kael that the planet would not exist as it was without him. KeO felt a love and deep pride for his people and his soldiers for standing by his side and working together. This was the society that Aesop had longed for. In the night sky, Noom rose within Kao's tall window now, and as gentle fog rolled past, the Uritan people and their great king fell asleep at peace once again. Thanks for stopping by this stop on the Fiction Road. Please visit again for another story in another time and another place.